This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be with you on this Saturday morning once again to look at health issues facing our community. Uh, This is our 105th consecutive program dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic, and I'm sad to say we're not out of this problem yet. Uh, The COVID positivity rate here in the state of Connecticut is now 10.5%. We're still seeing nationally approximately 400 deaths per day that are linked to COVID-19. And the latest is really this new booster. And the booster is designed to protect us against the two variants, the mutations of the virus that are becoming more prevalent and will be prevalent this fall and winter. The booster is now also available for children ages 5 to 11. And there's the Pfizer that is from 5 to 11 and Moderna uh, for children over the age of 6. And this is important. What saddens me is that so many people, we talked about it last week, and that is that so many people have not really paid attention to go out and get the booster. They think getting one shot a year or two ago was plenty. And it's not until we get control of this that we're going to be able to move forward. And by moving forward, I'm meaning less time lost being productive as a country. So we really need to get out there and encourage our family members to get the booster. And there's plenty of it, as I always say. Um, It's safe, available free of charge. Along with that, get the flu shot. The flu shot is going to be imperative this year because this is really the first year that we've opened things up a lot more with no mask requirements and people being out a lot more and are going to be in closed environments. This day in medicine is kind of an interesting one. October 15, 1923 was when Dr. Paul Drucker invented the heel stick. Now, the heel stick, for those of you unfamiliar with it, is that little prick that they give babies as soon as they're born to draw blood. So they draw capillary blood in an infant. Now, he was a pediatrician in Copenhagen. And basically, it was a safe way and continues to be a safe way to draw blood and do a great deal of genetic testing on infants. So typically in this country, it's done within 48 hours to screen for up to 50 genetic diseases. So that little prick on the heel of the infant will screen for things like phenylketonuria, sickle cell disease, hypothyroidism, cystic fibrosis, so things such as that. Thus allowing us to be able to go forward 
and and plan and help keep these children safe. So something so simple as something that we have been doing uh, coming up next year will be 100 years and something we still do today. And it's kind of apropos that we talk about that because my guest today is a pediatrician. It's Dr. Jennifer Hale who's going to be joining us. I found out about Dr. Hale from my son-in-law, Dr. Ashok Batarathara, who works with her at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. And her area of expertise is lead poisoning and lead exposure in children. A recent article published in the New London Day really talks about new legislation here in Connecticut so that we can get out in front of lead poisoning. It's still an issue. I remember when I was a kid that, you know, this was a problem with children eating lead paint. And uh, and now we see a lot more of it in our water supply. We're hearing about it in communities where our pipes have become old and we've not been able to keep up with infrastructure. And it, it's something we need to get out in front of. And we're starting to see more and more of it in children. So we're going to talk to her about the dangers of lead exposure in children. Uh, long-term and for the community, and really what are we doing to stay ahead of that problem. So I look forward to chatting with her in the second half of the program. Some of the things we're trying to keep up with. Last week I brought up the issue of the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration is considering the use of a breathalyzer in motor vehicles. So before you start your car, you've got to breathe into something to let you start it, to make sure you're not intoxicated, you've not been drinking. And it's interesting because, you know, we have an average of 10,000 deaths per year in the United States due to drunk driving. So that's about, you know, 29 per day. That doesn't take into consideration all the injuries we see and how many of these are young people who have fallen to this problem. So I asked people to get in touch with me, and I've been polling people as I talk to them, and overwhelmingly, people are supportive of this, of, of, of this. You know, there are always people who say it's an invasion of privacy, but it is a public health problem. And, I, you know, if you have had a loss in your family, the death or injury due to a drunk driver on the road, you certainly understand the importance of it. So it's something we're going to follow and see if uh, we're able to go forward with something like that. It certainly will change things, uh, but I believe it will change things for the better overall. We spend a lot of time on our program talking about Haiti and all the sadness going on there. Uh, and uh, just to backtrack a little bit for those who are not regular listeners, I I've spent a lot of time in Haiti working with uh, Dr. Jeremiah Lowney in Norwich and more recently for the past uh, 11 years uh, with Father Rick Frechette uh, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And as you know, there are so many things going on there from the standpoint of gangs and violence. It's never been a place with a very stable government. And it's so close to our shores uh, that we have a vested interest in it. It is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, without a doubt. Uh, there is no real infrastructure. It's hard to imagine that there's no 911 to call. When your house goes on fire, 
you better have a good relationship with your neighbors, and they do. So it's really your neighborhood becomes your family uh, to support you in times of crisis. It's very hard to get medical care. Uh, you wait in long lines. And now it's become uh, even more difficult. Right now, in a study published this week, 4.7 million Haitians face acute hunger. 19,000 just in the area known as City Soleil, a place where I've spent a lot of time with Father Rick and our teams there providing care for people who are impoverished. That area itself has been taken over by gangs who want to get control of the government. These are armed gangs that control the region. And the way they're getting control is by kidnapping. And in this case, they're essentially keeping the citizens of this area hostage. There's no way for them to get fuel. Fuel is going for $50 a gallon, if you can get it. They have blocked off the ports so that food and energy supplies are not getting into the country. So it is at the crisis stage. And I understand there's discussion of either the United Nations forces or another uh, force coming in to try and rectify the situation. We will keep watching that story. And we keep Father Rick Frechette and, and the people there who are working out of the goodness of their heart, uh, really to we keep them in our prayers every day uh, for their safety and their ability to continue working. We're going to take a short break. We're going to be talking a little bit about a, a study that was published this week uh, on colonoscopy. Should you still be getting a colonoscopy as a regular part of your screening? And that is the question facing us. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. If you wish to reach me either during the program or during the week, you can reach me at info at alessimd.com. I'm happy to take your health questions. And if I don't have the answer, we will uh, find somebody who does. Uh, and usually among the many uh, guests we have on our program. This week, a study published on colonoscopy uh, grabbed a lot of headlines. Uh, one of those headlines is screening doesn't cut risk of colon cancer deaths. So when you see something like that, and it says 10-year study questions benefit of the procedure, well, it's not entirely true. So let's really drill down. And that's one of the things we have time to do on this study. Truly, it was a 10-year study, and this study was conducted in Poland, Norway, and Sweden. And their study showed that there was an 18% less chance of getting colon cancer, which is a relatively small percentage, and the chance of death was only 0.3% as compared to people who did not have a colonoscopy. What the study doesn't take into consideration is several factors. The study done in the United States that we usually work off of was done with 90,000 participants. So a lot more than the previous this study that's being recorded. And participants were followed for 22 years. In that study, in the American study, 
was the reduction in colon cancer as opposed to 18% and 68% less chance of dying from colon cancer. So there's a big difference in the two studies. So why are there these differences? Well, one was done here in the United States where our diet is more consistent with the study itself as opposed to in Scandinavia, in Europe. But the other part is that there was no anesthesia given with the colonoscopies in Europe. You might say, well, that's barbaric, but it's really not. Uh, the issue is, so when you are, have anesthesia during the colonoscopy, as anybody who remembers from the event, you get some IV medication, um, you sleep for a while, next thing you know, you wake up and it's done. When you have the anesthesia, it allows the, the physician performing the procedure to be more complete. They're able to spend more time investigating the various folds of the colon without feeling as if they're causing you discomfort. And so with that, it, it appears that the study, when done with anesthesia, is a more complete study, uh, allowing the doctor also to take more biopsies. So when you see something that looks like a polyp, okay, you take a piece of it. So you're able to do that more frequently and get more samples when you use anesthesia. In this study, it wasn't done. The other part is that it's really not part of the culture there. So people had to agree to, people have to agree to having the colonoscopy. And in the study, only 42% of the people who were initially sampled agreed to have the colonoscopy. So they've not had as robust a system as we have had here. In fact, uh, in there, they've really only started doing colonoscopies on a large scale uh, in 2015, whereas this study was done uh, earlier than that and concluded in 2014. So um, it's interesting to look at these differences. Right now, in the United States, it used to be uh, colonoscopy was recommended every five years beginning at age 50. We have dropped that to age 45 now because the highest new rate of cancer, colon cancer, is in young people. So the groups that have been traditionally conservative in looking at this and more restrictive have actually lowered the number here in the United States. So again, this study grabs headlines and can be somewhat misleading, but it still remains important for people to get screened for colon cancer, the best test is a colonoscopy, and especially if you have a history of colon cancer in your family. So we'll keep that in mind, and we'll keep looking at literature as it comes up. Uh, I got an email uh, about the article that uh, recently published where scientists grow human brain cells in rats to study diseases. And so, no. This is not a situation where we can now start growing brain cells and transplanting them to humans, okay? 
What it does is, it is a great breakthrough, though, because it suddenly gives us a model for study. So when you do research, you want to find a model in the laboratory that you can use to study techniques and drugs. I always remember with muscular dystrophy what a great breakthrough it was when they were able to develop a mouse with muscular dystrophy to really study the genetics of it and has led to so, many, so much progress. But now with this availability, so they've been able to take human brain cells and grow them in rat brains. And that's been something so hard to do because those cells, the human cells, have to form a network. Now, now that we have that model, we could start looking at brain diseases and brain problems that are unique to humans and to human brain cells. Things like autism, things like schizophrenia. Again, these are unique to human brains, so it's important for us to really look at that. So this is a great breakthrough, and it, I think it will lead to new drug studies and new studies to deal with those uh, conditions that we discussed, including dementia. Something that came up also, I got a question about, which was a football player, J.J. Uh, Watt, who plays for the Arizona Cardinals. He is a defensive end, and he developed atrial fibrillation. Now, atrial fibrillation is a cardiac condition where the heart beats out of rhythm. So the sensation for a patient is that the heart rate suddenly speeds up. And with that, they become short of breath, more fatigued. In his case, they were able to treat it with what we call cardioversion. So an electrical shock that puts the heart back into rhythm. Now we see 2.7 million Americans have atrial fibrillation. So it's not an uncommon problem. Chronic atrial fibrillation demands the use of uh, blood thinning medications so that the heart doesn't shoot clots up to the brain. But in the case of an acute episode like this, it's safe to do cardioversion and it was safe for him to return to his sport. So uh, I hope I've cleared up any confusion uh, in that regard. Uh, this morning, I had the pleasure of doing an interview for a small radio station, WBLQ, in Westerly, Rhode Island. Uh, it was a sports talk show, and we talked a lot about concussion and primarily the issue of protocol. People, people focus on hearing the word protocol. You know, so a protocol is really a research device. Basically, to give an example, it's where we do research, say, on a tumor, right? So you take a group of people, and everybody has the same exact tumor with the exact cell structure so that you can look at different drugs, different techniques, different surgeries that may help cure that. So everybody in a study has the same protocol. The term protocol is really a misnomer when it comes to concussion because in concussion, it's a syndrome. There are a lot of different symptoms 
presenting to look at. So it's not just one type, in which case, if you, you can't treat everyone the same. I often say, if, if you've seen one concussion, you've only seen one concussion because they're so different. Somebody may have more dizziness. Somebody might have more headache. Somebody might have balance problems. So in looking at that, you have to treat the patient as something special. So I prefer to use the term process. There, there's a process. The first thing in the process is to make sure that person doesn't get hit in the head again. And that's the difference between treating sports patients, athletes, and the public, meaning people who may fall at home or people who may be in a car accident. When you're treating patients with concussion who are not athletes, you don't expect them to get hit in the head again. When you're taking care of athletes, especially those who participate in high-velocity collision sports like football and hockey, you have the expectation that they are going to get hit in the head again. And, and you have to treat them with that intention and knowing that going forward. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest. My guest is going to be Dr. Jennifer Hale, and she is the medical director at Connecticut Children's Regional-Led Treatment Program. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Connecticut. We're going to be talking about exposure to lead, particularly in children, and the ramifications it has on our society and on our children. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. It's great to be with you this afternoon, this morning. And my guest today is Dr. Jennifer Hale. Dr. Hale is a pediatrician. She is a specialist in pediatrics, but also medical director at Connecticut Children's uh, Regional-Led Treatment Program. And uh, this interview was prompted by a series of articles I saw in the New London Day talking a lot about lead and the lingering legacy, as they call it, of lead poisoning affecting our children. Jen, welcome to the program. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So... Let's start from the beginning. What what made you interested in doing pediatrics in general? You're from Connecticut, went to school at Tulane, where you went to medical yep. school, and, and then came back uh, to do pe- What's the allure of pediatrics? Because so many students um, that I work with just are going into pediatrics. There's something about supporting families from the beginning. Um, part of what I love doing is helping these new mothers really teaching them how to be a parent and supporting them in all the ways that they didn't know they needed support. Um, And to me, that's really enjoyable. And watching these kids grow up, you know, from the day they were born until, you know, they graduate out of my practice. Um, And there's, to me, that, that brings me joy. That's great. How, so how did you get to develop an interest in lead? So, um, Being at Connecticut Children's and in our primary care center based in Hartford, um, I'm really kind of in the heart of um, lead poisoning. Um, We see it a lot in our practice because um, 
of, of the city of Hartford, the age of the housing, the deterioration of the housing. And we always had a lead treatment center there. And, and I, you know, stepped in as a medical director when I realized there was a lot of education that needed to be provided to other providers, right? So people outside the Hartford area, people that aren't thinking about lead the way that I do. Um, and unfortunately, you know, lead poisoning and with children is that we always say the children are the canaries in the coal mine. So we don't know where the lead is until the child is screened positive. And so educating practitioners that they need to screen these kids so we can identify where the lead is and, and remove these children from these unsafe environments. You bring up an interesting question. Where is the lead? I mean, I remember it even as a child. People talk about lead in paint, but we haven't put yeah. lead in paint in many years uh, to my, yeah. right? So yeah. wh- where is the lead coming from? <laughs> so still the most common cause is lead paint and, and lead dust resultant from friction points of, of deteriorating lead paint. So lead was banned from paint in 1978. Um, but as we all know, Connecticut's housing stock is really old. Um, and, you know, according to the 2015 census data, 70% of our housing stock was built before 1978. So 70% of the houses in Connecticut probably have lead paint in them uh, or do have lead paint in them. And this becomes a problem when the paint deteriorates or you are um, doing renovations in your home and you're kind of releasing this lead. Um and then after the lead paint and the lead dust, it's in the soil, right? So houses were painted with lead paint. And as the outside of your house, you know, gets rained on and, and you know, is around all the elements, the lead paint washes into the soil and exposed soil. Kids, people play out in the, in, in the dirt and then they bring it in the house. It's on their hands. It's on their feet. It's on their shoes. You know, all the, the normal things. Um, and then, you know, there is a small... Very In Connecticut, it's not as much of an issue, but, um, you know, lead in the water is still, you know, can be a cause. And those are the environmental causes. But I think what's also becoming uh, more and more evident is the non-environmental causes of lead poisoning. And this includes um, spices. This includes um, lacquers on pottery, jewelry, a bunch of other things that people don't tend to think of. So there's lead in a lot of things that people don't even realize is there. Well, is the only way to take it in by eating it or ingesting it, or does it come in through your lungs? Like when you talk about jewelry and things such as that, are people licking the jewelry or? Well, children do, right? Kids put everything in their mouth. Sure. So, yeah, it's all it's all um, basically in, in you have to ingest it. Um, and again, the reason why kids more commonly are are poisoned than older children and why all of our screening recommendations are for younger children is that children learn by exploring their environments and exploring themselves. So what do they do? They put their hands in their mouth. They drop their toy. They put it in their mouth. They drop their bottle or their pacifier. They pick it up and put it in their mouth. And if there's invisible lead dust on their floor, they're essentially, you know, self-inoculating and to no fault of their own, right? They're just children learning and exploring. Does it does it have a taste to it? Is that what? So yeah, much, so yeah. Le, so lead lead paint is very sweet. Yeah, that's um, what I thought. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we we frequently have kids that will find find a windowsill or find a corner, and they found that sweet spot, and they just go back and they pick at it and they eat it. It's very it's it's sad. It's sad, and 
and it's it's again we are we are cleaning up the mess of lead paint. Interesting, because it must be a socioeconomic issue as well, because yeah. uh, really uh, people who are of means, right, are not living in old rundown housing. So Correct. again, I would have to think we're seeing this in people who are in more impoverished conditions. Am I correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. The most, you know, where we're seeing the highest incidence and prevalence is really in your um, bigger cities, right? So Hartford, Waterbury, Bridgeport, New Haven. And it's exactly that. It is everyone, everyone is, uh, is, is fair game to be poisoned, but the, unfortunately the, the kids that are poisoned are the ones um, living in um, lower socioeconomic, um, you know, situations. So what are the symptoms? How, how do you, do, do we screen every child now or are we just looking for symptoms uh, like uh, uh, delayed milestones, things like that. What what makes you think to test for lead poisoning? So that's the problem. <clears throat> there are symptoms of lead poisoning, but that's really at higher levels. Most kids are asymptomatic from their lead poisoning, um, which is where the screening comes in. So Connecticut actually has um, a state mandate that all children should be screened with blood work twice prior to the age of three. Um and having done this for a while now, we're getting better. Um, I think the last numbers we have from 2020 is 99% of the kids are screened once by the age of three. But we're really lagging in that second screen. Um, and so, again, screening is the most important thing. Um, most, most practices do their screening at one and two when they screen for anemia because um, it's just kind of easier to tack it on. Uh, but, you know, it's, there is a mandate. Pediatricians should be doing it, and um, not everyone is. So, all right. I mean, when you're doing screening, there are going to be times where you find the lead, but there are no symptoms. Do, do you assume, then, that there are symptoms? Do you initiate treatment? What do you do if, if you get an elevated level on a screening test? Yeah. So if you do get an elevated level on a screening test, um, and it's venous. So if it's capillary, which we can do, some offices do finger sticks in the office. If the finger stick is positive, you do need to repeat with the venous. If the venous level is higher than 3.5, um, which is the new uh, CDC recommendation in the state is actually uh, accepting that and passing a law, has passed a law that will go into effect January 1st, you need to essentially find the source. So First thing you can do is you can refer to your local lead treatment center. So there's one at Connecticut Children's and our counterpart down at Yale. Um, and we work a lot with the local health departments. Um, but the first thing you need to do is really take a step back and take a good environmental history um, with the families to try to figure out where they're being exposed. And then once you find the source, um, you know, there are tons of resources to help these families uh, remediate those sources or, or help or help these families move. So, all right. So once you have them, do you put them into a screening program where you're checking these children um, periodically? Yeah. So we check these children based on their, their levels. Um, we follow the CDC guidelines. And it's, it's once the unfortunate thing about lead and the unfortunate thing that the conversation I have to have with these families is once you've been exposed to lead, it gets absorbed into your muscles and your bones and your tissues and it can be months to years before it grows out. 
So basically it needs to grow back out of your body and that takes time. So once you are, you know, referred to us in, in the program, you know, you can be in the program for months to years before your level drops back to an acceptable level of less than 3.5. The only treatment um, per se is initiated when the lead level is 45 or above. Um, and, and we do um, admit these children to the hospital and um, chelate them with succimer, um, which is a long 19-day process. They're not in the hospital the whole time. But um, that's really the only treatment per se. Um, education for families, once they have an elevated lead level, include uh, a diet high in iron, calcium, and zinc, um, basically because your body would prefer to absorb those over the lead, um, really supporting development, right? So we know that even at low levels, um, kids can have decrease in IQ points, developmental delays, um, behavior issues. So referring them to early intervention services um, for any concern of, of a developmental delay. But in addition, uh, the state has actually adopted that they will provide support services to any child with a lead level 10 or above because they understand that even at these lower levels, the effects are long-term. You might have a child that, that seems fine now and they're developing normally now, but that might not be the case in 6, 9, 12, 24 months. So what has prompted, finally, I, I, you know, I, I always wonder how we're trying to catch up. So now we've gone from a threshold of 10 to 3.5. What, what's taken us so long? So, um, so it was actually, it, it, was, it was 10, and then it was 5, and now it's 3.5. Um, and basically, these numbers are put out by the CDC um, based on NHANES, so National Health and Nutrition Examination Surveys, and it's based on the distribution of the blood lead levels in the United States. So basically, 97.5% of the kids um, will be above that level. So that's why it's kind of been shifting. I think the other thing, too, is drawing attention to it is that we now know and we have proven time and time again the long-term effects of lead poisoning on these children. I mean, children with lead poisoning are more, you know, there's, a, there's an association with high school dropouts, increased risk of incarceration. I mean, things, you know, 18, 20 years after they were exposed for no fault of their own. So, again, trying to, to identify and remove these kids from from the exposure is just so important. Wow. I, I didn't realize that. So yeah. let, me, let me back up on that point. <laughs> so uh, in other words, so how do we know? So do we know that they were exposed and then follow them forward, or are we looking back to see if they were exposed to lead? Um, so there were a few studies that have actually been, been, been put out that have associated this incarceration risk, which I found very interesting, um, and also the high school delinquency and, and, and dropouts. So I, I think it was a retrospective study. I don't have them in yeah. front of me. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it, it's been proven in, in a known association, which, again, it's just as a pediatrician, right, so much of what we do is prevention. And, you know, I want to give all these kids a fair chance um, and, and it's unfortunate that, that they are put in these situations in, in poor housing. Um, and again, not, not to, to discredit all of the non-environmental causes, but really most of the time it's, it's environmental and it's, it's, it's the pain. How much of it is, is from water? 
because we're hearing more about it. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, we're hearing more and more about the safety of our water. And, yeah. um, you know, now that we have a declining infrastructure, we have older pipes uh, uh -huh. and uh, they were lead pipes. Is that becoming or will it become a significant source of uh, lead? So, you know, and I, I, I think Flint, the Flint crisis, you know, right. we, we, we have to talk about it. So um, it's true, right? Everything's in the ground. We know there's lead in the pipes. Interestingly, lead solder only became outlawed in 1986. So it was very recent. Um, and so I think because, unfortunately, of the of the Flint crisis, we are now more That's aware. Um, the state just um, received a lot of money to repair um, pipes that they've identified um, as, as potentially causing lead when we find it. It is not a common source because we treat our water. So water is treated to adjust the pH to prevent corrosion and to coat the pipes to prevent corrosion. And what happened in Flint is they changed the water source to the Flint River from a different source, and they didn't properly adjust the treatment of the water, which then allowed the lead to leach out of the pipe into the water. So I think the example has been set, and I think that at least from, for the state of Connecticut, we are very aware and, and have kind of a pulse on the water situation. But that's, that's public water, so you still have to deal with wells. Um, and, and testing well water, because again, that's not tested like, like city water, uh, in city pipes. And there's all, there's a risk with that because of that solder. Um, so it, that again is a problem that's not going to go away. Um, and it's kind of a different, it's a different battle and more difficult battle to fight because it's, it's invisible, but you know, in the state of Connecticut, we treat our water and we treat our water appropriately to avoid corrosion of the lead from the pipe. Jen, in closing, we have about a minute left. Uh, mm -hmm. What's the message you'd like to get out to parents uh, regarding lead exposure uh, in children? I think the biggest thing for me is to be sure that your child is being screened for lead poisoning, right? So you're twice screening before the age of three is very important. And the other thing is children with developmental delays should be screened yearly. I mean, you know, you have these autistic children who are nonverbal and, and more um, likely to put things in their mouth. Those kids should be screened yearly and trying to identify um, if they have an area that, that they're worried about in their house that's deteriorating. They can call their local health department. They can call us. I can connect them to, to resources and, and, and things like that. But I think the most important thing is identifying these children, and you can't identify them without screening them. So I think parents need to, to really be aware of this, and I think practitioners need to, you know, do their due diligence as well. Um, but I think that's the big thing is, is getting your child screened to make sure your child is not being exposed. Jen, I see the number on the website, but uh, is that the best number for people to get in touch with you, the 837-7250? So if you have a child and you suspect uh, lead exposure in your home, you could reach out to Dr. Hale at 860-837-7250. She's at Connecticut Children's Medical Center. Jen, thanks for taking time today from your busy day. And more importantly, thanks for everything you do for our community. 
Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thanks. We're going to take a short break, then we're going to be back to wrap it up. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. And it was interesting chatting with Dr. Hale really about water supply and and a story that came up I'll refer you to, and we'll talk more about it, about a northwestern community uh, in northwestern Vermont called Richmond, Vermont, where suddenly um, a health department official was gradually lowering the fluoride level uh, in their water. And it came to note that a mother and several mothers were noting that their children had more and more cavities. So it, it prompted them to, to look into this, and apparently this uh, person who is in charge, uh, he's the superintendent of water and wastewater, um, he believed that the fluoride was coming from China, so therefore they shouldn't put so much of it in the water and took it upon himself. So it, it stresses, again, the importance of us knowing what's in our water as we move forward. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. I think we're going to do a show about water safety and how we know our water is safe. I want to once again thank uh, Dr. Hale for spending time with us uh, today. I want to thank my son-in-law, Ashok, for making the connection and, and getting her on the program. Uh, many thanks to Kevin Corza. He's been on the board today. As always, Jeff Chandler's in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next week, we're going to be chatting about breast cancer. We're going to look at an update. I know we've done this, and it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, but we're starting to hear a lot more about new techniques for looking at breast cancer, um, especially women with dense breasts, um, and, and how we look at those and screen women for breast cancer. We've made a lot of headway, but we're not there yet. And if you missed any part of today's program, you can get it on the Healthy Rounds podcast. Uh, you can download it free at odyssey.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Next up on WTIC is Law Talk with Attorney John Matulis. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi. Sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.